Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Child care is essential for children, helping them developmentally and preparing them for school. Child care is also important to the economy. Challenges finding or affording child care is a factor behind a continuing labor shortage in our state. That's according to the Connecticut Business and Industry Association. The Hartford Current reporting that the CBIA supports legislation this session to boost state funding for the child care industry, specifically to help the Care for Kids program for low to moderate income families. But exactly how much state lawmakers will allocate is still unknown, while billions of federal dollars to help the child care industry remain stalled in Washington. Today, where we live, we talk to child care providers who plan to rally in New Haven and several other Connecticut cities on Tuesday, demanding state lawmakers allocate more resources. Now, have you struggled to pay for child care or do you work in the industry and find your wages aren't enough to support you or your family? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us on Zoom is Alex Chavoni, Executive Director of the Friends Center for Children in New Haven. She's also a member of the Child Care for Connecticut's Future Coalition. Alex, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Happy to be here. I understand you've been involved in early childhood care and education for some time. The Friends Center for Children providing child care and education for children ages three months to to age five years old. And so I want you to talk about, you know, how bad is the child care crisis from your perspective? Um, I think I think the word crisis is absolutely the right word. It is a crisis. Um, we are operating in a system that is broken. Families pay too much. Educators make too little and programs can't afford to stay open. Um, and yet, as you know, as you mentioned, the entire uh, workforce relies on us. So the entire economy rests on the shoulders of the early care and education system. And so far, decision makers have not stepped in to help us. Um, we are realizing that we need to organize and participate in our own rescue. And that is really the purpose of tomorrow. So tell us about tomorrow. This is a morning without child care rally. I think you helped organize the New, the New Haven rally on the green tomorrow morning at 8. And there's going to be other events, Alex, or across the state? Yes. Um, actually, this is the first time. So you mentioned that I've been doing this for a while. I've been uh, in this field for 31 years. It's the first time there is a statewide action um, that really is calling attention to uh, the crisis that we're in. Um, we have been historically uh, ignored, underfunded, and marginalized for decades and decades and decades. And so we are now seeing um, the culmination of that neglect. 80% uh, of families across the state can't afford childcare. 62% of childcare programs across the state are operating at a loss. And state subsidized programs, which Friend Center is a state subsidized program, have not seen a rate increase uh, since 2015. So it is to the point where we are going to have to close, not Friend Center, but programs across the state, if we do not have um, 
an investment from the state. At that rally uh, with uh, in New Haven and, and other yeah. cities, uh, tell us about who will be there and you know, how you're coordinating this, of course, with families because they rely on you for their child care to get to work tomorrow. Yeah, the, ten- the tension for us in having to make this decision and really um, families are our partners. So you can imagine how desperate we are when we had to ask them to uh, sacrifice their morning and their morning of care to be able to um, stand with us. We have had overwhelming uh, parent support. Um, Last night I got a text uh, with a picture of a child, um, uh, an older sibling making a sign uh, in his own handwriting uh, for the rally on Tuesday. So we are um, really seeing both families, educators, um, community members step up to come and uh, support this this action. It's time that we confront and acknowledge our biases and how those biases shape our values because our system is being ignored and underfunded because of those biases and values. So mm-hmm. we're very excited to call attention to this and 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 really demand that we that we have the support for this infrastructure that that the entire Connecticut economy rests on. So tell us more when you talk about the biases that that uh, neglect the fact that, uh, again, child care yeah. is essential. Um, I'm looking at a, a survey that the Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance did, I believe, uh, early this year. Uh, one of the findings, close to three in five child care workers surveyed reported under-enrollment due to lack of necessary staff. And Absolutely. even though there's a wait list, they can't have them in the class because of the particular ratios that the state requires. And so so talk through with us um, some of like on the ground experiences that child care providers um, have been dealing with, you know, the last two years. Yeah. So, so to, to, to start at the top of the question, which is, you know, what are our, how do we get here? Like, what are the values and biases that shape sort of, of where we are? And we have to really acknowledge that child care is seen as women's work. Um, 98% of the early childhood educators are female and a disproportionate number of them are black and brown women or women of color. The average salary is $24,000. So the system itself is literally designed to pay women to live in poverty. And the reason that is, is because the system is about women's work and, and also children's well-being, which is just ridiculous that it's not valued. So what does that say about us? Um, it's absolutely been made into this um, conversation about we can't afford it. So uh, we can't afford child care. It's so expensive. You know, you're asking for $700 million, which is our ask, to, to, to save this system. And it's, it's just this false argument that it's about money. Because the investments in child care are, are really not about a lack of money. It's about what we value. And we don't value women and children. And if, because if it was about money, we would be investing from, um, you know, learning and well-being from birth, because it's been proven that the rate of return, I, I didn't prove it, but Dr. James Heckman, who is a Nobel Prize winning in, uh, professor in economics, every dollar we put into the system has a seven to $13 return, and we still don't invest in early childhood education. So I'm really calling, we are calling, those of us in the field are saying, it's time to adequately value women, children, and families. And the state can make that very smart investment that has a high rate of returns. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm happy to talk about the, the life we've experienced in the last two years because it has been uh, 
absolutely unbearable. Um, the women who have stepped in and stepped up and taken on the brunt of the pandemic, if you, especially family childcare uh, providers um, who were did not close. So you have this entire group of people, the early care and education industry that did not close during the pandemic when schools closed. We kept the economy running it, and we have not been um, acknowledged, recognized or valued in a fiscal way to change the system. You mentioned uh, $24,000 a year. And so when we think about, you know, how that breaks down uh, per hour, um, you know, it's it's really stark, right, that these women, as you mentioned, um, are doing this work that's so vital for families and the economy uh, to help people go back to work, yet um, they're having trouble paying their bills, Alex. Absolutely. So we are um, an industry where we rely on public subsidies um, uh, to to make ends meet. So um, women are uh, receiving supports for housing or um, electricity or food because their work doesn't sustain them or they have second or third jobs. I mean, think about think about it, what, what that means to to really give of yourself all day, care for children at the level um, that these uh, the industry and, and the women do, but also that it demands. I mean, we're, we're, we're raising humans, right? With We're in partnership with parents and, and, and supporting humans all day. And then they are working, taking a shift at Amazon at night or nannying um, or working on the weekends. I mean, it is really remarkable the um, extent to which the workforce, the early care and education workforce um, uh, has to go to, to do what they love. You're hearing Alex Schiavone here on Where We Live. She's executive director of the Friends Center for Children in New Haven. Alex helping organize a rally on the New Haven Green tomorrow, a morning without child care rally where providers, educators, and others are hoping to raise awareness about uh, the crisis that the child care uh, sector faces, uh, the fact that they've been underfunded, asking for state lawmakers to invest uh, another $700 million uh, to support uh, uh, the child care programs around our state, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so, um, Alex, when we think about uh, the child care system being broken, we've heard that for some time. We've done numerous shows on Where We Live. We've talked with the commissioner, Beth Bai, of the State Office of Early Childhood, who say that, you know, these conditions have been um, ongoing for some time, even before the pandemic. And we know that there were several rounds of, of federal and, and some state relief funding early on, but why hasn't that money been sufficient and what will it take to change the system? Yeah, so, you, I mean, it's it's decades and decades and decades. I just want to be really clear with, with listeners um, that we have been uh, getting, you know, in this crisis. Um, the, the funds that you reference absolutely kept us operational during the pandemic. So without those, you would have seen an even more significant drop in uh, early care and education opportunities across the state. So those were um, absolutely critical and we would not have survived at all without them. Um, the problem is that they are one-time fund and they are used to fill you know, a, a giant hole in the boat, so to speak. Um, the, the boat itself is still leaking everywhere. <laughs> So we flood the giant hole, but now we're just taking on water and we, you know, we bail it out every day. Um, 
at, just to give you an example, at Friend Center, we have to raise over a quarter million dollars every year just to stay operational. And we can do that. So we basically, you know, uh, we, we ask for donations. It's basically, a fil- we're a ph- philanthropic organization. That is not a reasonable, sustainable method of operation. And programs across the state cannot do that. So when you talk about what needs to happen, it needs to be looked at from a, from a fiscal perspective. What is the benefit of investing in early care and education from a workforce perspective? You are talking about three different components. You have the immediate workforce, which is us, the early care and education um, uh, teachers and educators. If you could, if we were paid uh, if women were paid a livable wage across the entire sector, you would eliminate um, that workforce crisis. You would start to have people who would want to be in the field. Right now, it costs with thirty-six to forty thousand dollars to get your degree, and you come out and you make you know thirty-two after ten years with a bachelor's. That is an unreasonable ask um, to, to have someone want to go into that field. The second workforce is your future workforce, right? So you are actually giving children a foundation for all future learning. Zero to five is the largest brain development, time of brain development in in a human, right? And we're creating all those pathways and synapses and neurons talking to each other. And without it, those, they die. So early care, your brain synapses will actually die without that, that, that stimulation. So we have this window to really create this entire baseline for future, um, you know, the future of uh, workforce. And then you've got like you and and me, parents who need to work and they need somewhere to have their children go that is safe, reliable, um, joyous, loving, uh, that, that fosters their brain development. So it's a three pronged workforce initiative. Given that and the rate of return, it, it makes no sense why uh, decision makers have not stepped up and funded this industry um, in an adequate way. Mm. Uh, we know that the, the uh, I believe $750 billion to help uh, child care uh, nationwide is stalled in Washington. Um, yes, and yes. again, you mentioned the, the state needing to pony up more to the tune of $700 million. So how would that money uh, be used, Alex? Can you give us the breakdown? Yeah, great. It would um, it's it would make it competitive, right, for employee employers such as myself uh, by helping us um, offer that ba- package, like benefits package, like health insurance and stuff. It would have an increase in wages. We absolutely have to increase wages to if we expect um, people to devote and dedicate themselves to this field. Um, it would increase care for kids, which you mentioned the, at, at the top of the of our time together, so that working families can stop living to pay, paycheck to paycheck. Um, and then we uh, offer scholarships uh, for people who want to go into this field so that their degree debt is not prohibitive um, from them entering in. And then we need to expand. There's a 50,000 slot shortage of, for infants and toddlers across the state of Connecticut. So 50,000 in, in New Haven, for example, it's for every 10 people looking for a spot, there are only two for infants and toddlers. That's zero to three-year-olds. And that's if you can afford it. And the, co- high, the, the cost of infant toddler care is twenty-two dollars to $25,000 per year for high-quality infant toddler care. So you can imagine, so seven, seven, $700 million is 
would be made up of those different aspects. So paying teachers more, lowering costs for families, and offering programs the opportunity to expand to meet the need. And what are you hearing from state lawmakers, Alex? Um, so there are there are some there is some legislation right now that is coming up and is before uh, you know that the decision makers right. So we are hearing support. Um, I think people understand and recognize that it is time to um, invest and create a, a network and an infrastructure that allows the Connecticut economy to move forward, to, to recover, and then to move forward. I think the most critical thing is for us um, to really apply pressure and to ensure that any decisions that are made to fund this system are actually not designed to fund the existing system, but to think about what we can do to change it. If we continue to, to just fund the system as it is, you will get the same result in the long run. So that's why we're really suggesting very specific ways to um, allocate the 700 million that would change systemically some of the things that we have been doing. So it's positive, um, Lucy, in terms of the bills that are out there right now, it'll be about what happens when they come to the actual uh, decision and whether or not they're willing to uh, stay with the funding amount that is in there, the 700 million, or if they tear it down and cut it back and make it non-effective. That legislation that you mentioned, I believe uh, the Dem uh, state Democrats have drafted a yeah. uh, quote to address pandemic impact on childhood depression, anxiety, and developmental delays through the expansion of support services. So again, additional uh, money for the Care for Kids uh, program. Uh, South Windsor uh, State Representative Saoud Anwar told the current, we are hopeful because this industry is going to die if we don't intervene. It's that dire. Uh, are you hopeful, Alex? I'm always hopeful. I'm always hopeful, Lucy. I'm in the business of, um, uh, of you know, working with children. And it's really hard not to be hopeful when you come into a space where you hear children and see them and see families interacting, um, you know, with babies as, you know, young as six months. How, how can you not be hopeful? Um, I am skeptical that decision makers one, recognize and understand the true crisis because our field has been solving the crisis for them by showing up, by doing the work, by creating loving spaces, by being willing to literally carry the lack of um, funding and infrastructure and system, you know, uh, healthy system on the back, on our backs. So the women have been holding this uh, fragile and broken thing together. And I really think we're at a point where we're saying enough. Um, so that might tip us in the right direction, but I'm, I'm, so I'm hopeful and skeptical. Alex Schiavone, again, is executive director of the Friends Center for, Ch for Children in New Haven. She's also a member of the Child Care for Connecticut's Future Coalition and helped organize the New Haven event tomorrow morning without Child Care Rally. That's on the green from 8 to 9 a.m. There are other rallies planned across the state in several other cities. Alex will stay with us. And after the break, we're going to hear from a family child care provider who continues to operate despite losing money while open during the pandemic. 
And later we learn about a program through the Connecticut Women's Business Development Council that provides financial relief and capital to licensed child care providers. Now, do you work in the child care industry? Have you struggled to pay for child care? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you have children and you're employed, you know how important child care is to your family and your ability to do your job each day. Over the last two years, many parents worked remotely while their kids stayed home. Others lost their incomes and couldn't keep their children enrolled in programs. These realities have taken a toll on child care centers and family child care businesses like the one Ruben Malma and his wife run in the Fairhaven neighborhood in New Haven. Ruben Malma joins us now. He and his wife have been family child care providers for more than 20 years. Ruben, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for inviting me. That's a long time uh, to be providing care for families. How did you get involved with this work? I understand you were the first man to be licensed as a family child care provider in our state, Ruben. Uh, Yes. Uh, Actually, um, uh, my wife uh, started first uh, the business. She was working uh, as a teacher assistant in, um, in the school in New Haven. So she decided to work by herself, opening a family home daycare. She got the license, she was working, and uh, after a while, she told me, you you need to be my assistant. So I say, uh, well, uh, how's that? So after uh, that, she told me that you need to be my substitute, okay? And then she combines me to be a provider. I say, um, I have to think about that because uh, mostly uh, only this job is only for a woman. So she said to me, no, you can do too. Okay. Uh, so I got my license. And so I started operating in the second floor of my house. Uh, actually, she was my mentor. And I said, thanks to her. So, you know, this, that's where I am right now, a family child care provider. Mm. So tell us about the families that you and your wife, uh, again, you provide child care for them. Um, you know, tell us more about uh, the neighborhood that you're in and some of the experiences that these families had over the pandemic when they needed to rely on you and your wife for care. 
Ah, uh, yes. Um, well, uh, the pandemic actually, is, uh, when the pandemic started, uh, we were still working, uh, but day by day, uh, the situation was getting worse. So we decided to close because uh, um, at that time, actually, I was uh, uh, 59 years old. Uh, I wasn't too young, you know, so to to be able, you know, to uh, to deal with the uh, with the pandemic, uh, afraid of the of the contagion, uh, even uh, lose my wife as well. You know, she has a condition, uh, so we closed for a, uh, she closed for about uh, um, from March to July, and she reopened it. And after that, in September, I reopened it again, and. Um, we were working, first of all, because we understand that parents uh, needs to go to work. They were calling us, uh, and uh, also we know that they were afraid of the, of the pandemic as well. But uh, the thing is that I think they trust, uh, you know, how we were working, how we how we handled the situation, especially with um, with the cleanliness of the house uh, of the service that we provide. So. Until now, actually, we're still uh, we're still working without any any uh, any problems. Mm. So you were essential for parents who were also essential workers. They had to go to work. Uh, Ruben, um, how much money um, would you say that you had that you lost during this time? Were you able to get any assistance uh, from the state? Uh yes. Uh, well, actually, yes. No, no. Uh, I'm going I'm to be honest. Uh, um, the prices that we have in this area. It's got to be low because we provide services for the low-income families. Um, I mean, the, the average uh, is going to be between 200 to 220 to uh, 200 sometimes, 200 from 200 to 250 per week for each child. Uh, we work for 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. So the simple math is going to say that uh, uh, we are earning $5.60 maybe for hour for each child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, at the time of the pandemic, actually, we only get uh, the money from care for kids for the child that they got, you know, that subsidy. Uh, but within the child, the family fits for the for the for the parents, uh, and of course, you know, we we lost a lot of money. Mm. Uh, Ruben, I understand that you'll be speaking at that event in New Haven tomorrow. What are you going to share with people about what you and your wife have, have experienced? Uh, first of all, uh, we need to tell the people not how important we are. No, we're not important. We are just a part of the community because that's our job. We love our job, our work. You know, we have a lot of passion and love. And I know the situation is hurting also the families, the parents. But the, who's hurting more is the children. And then we're going to tell the people that the government... Uh, uh, the people who's in charge, they need to support us. They need to see uh, that we are. They need to learn. They need to learn that we are in the struggle, and we can survive. It's hard to imagine, you know, that uh, maybe in a few days, in a few weeks, in a few months, in the coming days, uh, we're gonna be forced to close the business because we can. We can do more. It's it's too much. Not the work. The cleaning supplies still expensive. You know how much money we spend, you know, buying uh, supplies. Uh, the food 
has increased a lot in food prices. Uh, and the rates of the, of the food program is still the same. It's still the same. Nothing has changed. And we can raise the price to the parents. We can't because the parents are, maybe they are in worse situation than us. And then we need help. We need help. We, need, we, are, we are desperate for help. Right. Ruben, how many times have you and your wife had the conversation, maybe it is time to close? How do you keep going? Well, actually, uh, um, we, when I started this, uh, this work, okay, I was thinking in my retirement, I said, well, maybe 62, maybe 65, maybe 67. But I mean, I find out that uh, working with children is not really a job. It's, it's like, a, I mean, it's something that fill your heart, fill your, your body, fill your mind. Um, you can, I can, I mean, I can imagine, you know, kids uh, uh, not to having someone, you know, who cares, like a childcare providers. Uh, where they go, where the parents, they, they're going to put the children. Uh, my experience, for example, or our experience with lose my wife, is when the children, they don't want to go home. They want to stay all day. So we have to tell them, you need to go home. And then for myself, actually, break my heart when the children call me dad in front of their own parents. That's rewarding. That's more than the money that I'm getting, really, from from uh, from the payment that they are, uh, I'm getting. And, uh, you know, it's got to be hurtful if we have to close the, you know, uh, the business. But uh, somehow, you know, um, maybe we're going to do it because uh, uh, we need to pay mortgage. We need to pay bills. Uh, we have to hire extra uh, personnel in order to get help during the, during the pandemic. Uh, my wife worked with the substitute uh, full time. I work also with the substitute. Uh, and then we have to pay them as well, you know. So it is hard. It is hard, Lucy. Yeah. Ruben Malma, again, is a child care provider, a family uh, child care provider. He and his wife providing child care in their home in the New Haven community uh, for more than 20 years. Uh, we're going to take a listener call in just a moment, but I wanted to get Alex uh, again uh, to respond. Uh, again, um, Alex Shavoni, who's executive director of the Friends Center for Children in New Haven. Alex, uh, Ruben and his wife doing this work for some time. There are different uh, options for people when they they're looking for care. There are the child care centers. There's also the family child care homes that are also uh, important uh, programs. Can you respond to what Ruben shared with us? Yeah, just, I, I, I mean, you couldn't, because I was obviously off, off mic, but um, Ruben, I was with you the whole time. Yes, what you do is um, amazing. And I think um, you mentioned when we're talking about this, we're talking about early care and education that means it's a mixed delivery system. So we're talking about centers, we're talking about family child care, we're talking about, you know, kin, right? People who use care for kids for some uh, family member to watch their children. All of these things make up the infrastructure. It, it's, it's currently, there is no one delivery system. And actually in the uh, federal legislation, they intentionally kept it as a mixed delivery system because the entire country is made up of a variety of different ways of supporting early care and education. Family child care providers are a critical and just lifeline 
for communities and areas and parents who prefer that method of childcare. They want a more intimate setting. They want um, sometimes there are non-traditional hours. It is a critical aspect of this early care and education infrastructure. And centers actually for programs like mine have more access to funding. The fact that when we talk about, when I talk about the fact that we're, you know, marginalized and underfunded, we are as a center, but family care and education providers are even more so um, oppressed. And the fact that those exist in communities that are, like Ruben said, meeting families' needs who can't afford um, more than X or Y is really just another example of how we're not equitably looking at the early care and education infrastructure and decision makers are not using a lens of equity when they're making decisions about where funds go. We're talking about the child care crisis here on where we live. Again, uh, child care providers around the state asking for the state to do more, provide $700 million in funding uh, to support uh, these programs and the workers who provide this care. Cora is calling in from Hamden. Cora, what's been your experience? Hi, um, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I'm the director of a center in Brantford, Connecticut, and we have four sites um, in Hamden, New Haven, and Brantford. And um, we're just experiencing, especially at the towards at this point in the pandemic, really, really high levels of burnout among our teachers. Um, and we've had nine staff members and teachers between our four sites resign since January. And they're not going to other programs. We tend to pay our teachers um, better than many programs were able to, um, but they're leaving the field entirely. And one really interesting um, layer that's been added to this, which I've noticed, is a lot of our teachers who are now starting their own families aren't able to afford quality child care. So they're providing quality child care to children in the communities, but they can't afford it themselves. So that's adding to a layer of um, discouragement and um, frustration with the industry as a whole. And I really think that that's playing a huge part on um, people leaving the field and deciding to stay home with their children. Cora, because you're, you're losing these educators, what are the wait lists like from families that, that need care? We have a wait list at all four of our schools um, that's extremely, extremely long, especially for infant toddler care. Um, and we were worried that we won't be able to provide the care for all of the families that need it um, because we don't have the staff. And um, we haven't reached a point where we're really, really concerned about closing yet. But if we continue to have teachers leave and have to resign, um, we're just not really sure how we'll stay afloat and how we'll be able to provide quality care um, to the families because we're really not getting a lot of applicants at this point. So teachers are resigning and we haven't really been able to replace them in the classroom. Well, thank you, Cora, for telling us uh, what you're experiencing as the director of a, a child care center along the shoreline. Alex Schiavone, did you want to respond? It speaks to what Ruben shared with us, that in the end, uh, the children are the ones that are missing out the most here. Absolutely. I, I want to acknowledge, um, Cora, just in terms of a couple things. One is to put some numbers behind that. So there are 1,300 
um, openings right now for early care and education, not right now, but that was the last count. Um, we are experiencing the exact same thing. Um, we have uh, spent more money in, since um, the start of the pandemic on uh, postings and trying to recruit and find quality educators than I have in the 20 years of doing it before, right? So it's really remarkable what is happening, the, the um, lack of uh, uh, available or interested teachers. And then the well-being piece you met, mentioned, um, you also talked about it, Lucy, in terms of what the uh, legislature is trying to respond to, but the emotional well-being of early care and education um, teachers is just at an all-time low. And we have to recognize that while funding is a critical piece to shift the way that people think about the industry and deciding to come into this field, that emotional well-being is not um, a fiscal aspect. So we have to also, this is where I really think the value piece is really critical. People want to feel valued. If you are committing your life, as Ruben talked about, um, talked about how he and his wife, this joy and this love and this fulfillment that they get, but if they're not valued by the rest of society, if we are not valued by the rest of society, you could pay someone, you know, as you know, livable wage, which is our goal. And if you don't value them, it doesn't have as much um, impact. So we have to change the way we value these women who are literally giving parts of their soul all day to other people's children and to the point that they can't afford childcare on, on, on their own for their own children. I mean, that is really disturbing. So Cora brings up some really critical points and something for listeners to think about. And if it makes you feel as fired up as I am right now, then come out and join us at one of these rallies across the state because we need support and we need help. Mm. Again, you've been hearing Alex Schiavone here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the Friends Center for Children in New Haven. We've been talking uh, to her and other child care providers about uh, tomorrow, uh, statewide, uh, several cities, including New Haven, holding a morning without child care rally. That's on the New Haven Green at 8 to 9 a.m. We'll have information on our website about um information about the other cities that are holding these rallies. Uh, Alex, thank you for your time today. And hopefully the next time we have a, a child care conversation, there will be some movement uh, towards uh, fixing the system. Yes, let's let's hope. Hope is eternal, right? We'll keep we'll keep working on it, Lucy. Thank you for the time. And Ruben, I want to just acknowledge and appreciate um, that we were able to do this together. So thank and you. Ruben, Ruben Malma was also here. He and his wife, family child care providers in New Haven for more than 20 years. Ruben, thank you for your time today. He's also a member of All Our Kin, which is a, a nonprofit supporting family child care providers. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you for having me, Lucy, and thank you for All Our Kin for the support, academic support that they are giving to us, actually. You know, the quality of our work is thanks to them. Actually, they provide workshops, you know, they are always in communication. You know, they are a big support for us. Thank you so much. That's Ruben Malma. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear about a program that has provided um, uh, multi-million dollars and hopes to continue in financial relief to licensed child care providers. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the child care crisis and why child care centers and family child care businesses have struggled over the last two years. Now, the Connecticut Women's Development Council has partnered with the State Office of Early Childhood to provide a support program for licensed child care providers, so financial relief and capital for these small businesses. Joining us now on the phone is Louise Lisboa, Director of the Child Care Business Support Program at the Connecticut Women Business Development Council. Louise, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So I mentioned this child care business support program. When did it start? And you know, tell us about some of the outcomes here. Absolutely. So we launched our child care business support program at the Women's Business Development Council back in June of 2020. And really, it was done as a partnership with the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood, or OEC. And we're offering a comprehensive business support program that provides training, advising, mentoring, and as you mentioned, grants to licensed child care providers throughout Connecticut. That includes family homes, group homes, and even centers, whether you have six children or up to 300 even. So when we think about um, these grants, uh, tell us about how they've been used so far. Uh, we heard earlier how some assistance helped keep these providers open, but when we think about how to support them in the long term, Louise, can you talk about that? Absolutely. So we have had the fortune of putting over 200 grants and $2.5 million in the hands of providers over the last two years. And that's through four different grant programs. We've served all different business stages from startup grants to emergency grants to even expansion grants. So in this last round uh, where we had over $600,000 given out, we had folks that really needed emergency facilities grants. So repairing their entrance uh, to their family home program that was leaky and drafty or uh, enlarging a basement window to make an emergency exit or some folks face storm damage, right? And they needed to get those items fixed so the children can play safely outside, not on a broken jungle gym. So we definitely saw some funds going towards helping providers stabilize. And we saw some programs actually ready to expand their doors. We had the fortune of helping four family homes expand and open up their first child care center um, throughout the state. We had folks creating under three and preschool classrooms, uh, really driving their enrollment up and able to help more families in the community. When we talk about this being also, you know, giving grants out uh, through this support program, but I understand there's also the business development training and other opportunities. Uh, so can you talk more about you know, why that is so important? Absolutely. We know that child care providers really get into the industry because they're passionate about educating our next generation of leaders. They love children. They love the work that they do, but they're not often trained in business. They're not graduating from business school. They're graduating with degrees in early childhood. And so the way we see things go in the industry, folks are often promoted from teacher to administrator with not a lot of knowledge on how to run that program effectively from a business standpoint. And so the Women's Business Development Council comes in with free, no-cost training and advising to help fill in those gaps and really meet providers at where they're at. So we provide uh, 
workshops and webinars that include social media, accounting, QuickBooks, marketing, legal, human resources, all areas to help you manage your business more effectively because we want you to learn the skills you need to save time in your day because we know your days are long enough, right? A 12-hour day, providers are working. They don't have a lot of time to do um, the other functions. So we want to help with some of that. We have a team of dedicated advisors offering multilingual support in English, Spanish, French, and other languages to help uh, childcare business owners do what they need to do, right? Find those efficiencies in their business, train them, help them reach that next goal. If you're suffering with enrollment, um, how you market your program to boost that enrollment. We see a lot of providers we're working with are, of course, facing a huge workforce crisis. And while the Women's Business Development Council cannot, of course, solve that crisis on its own, we want to do our little part to help you develop strategies to recruit those staff effectively. How do you compensate them and um, how do you retain them and develop that onboarding program that will hopefully keep them there and keep you in the workforce for the next five, ten years? You're hearing Louise Lisboa here on Where We Live, Director of the Child Care Business Support Program at the Women Business Development Council. Again, more than 237 grants given out, more than $2.5 million to licensed child care providers around our state. So besides being licensed, Louise, how are people eligible for this program? Absolutely. So we look at a variety of factors. We're looking at how long you have been in business, and that will qualify you for one of multiple grant programs. So if you're just aspiring, you have um, working on your process of becoming licensed with the OEC, you could be eligible for our startup grants up to $5,000. And if you've been operating for less than six months, you are also eligible for that grant program. For our emergency facilities grant program, we're looking at folks that have been licensed for six months or more and have enrollment levels of 40% or 60% or higher. And we're looking to see um, that you're able to provide proof of what your emergency facilities need is, right? Something's broken in your, your program. It's stopping you from running your program safely and effectively. That is something we want to help you fix. And for our expansion grant, we're looking at you to be in business for two years or more with enrollment of 75% or higher of your license capacity because we want to make sure that you're in a good place now before you expand your business, take on more expenses, um, and really try to grow your program. So we're here even regardless of what level you're at to achieve that grant. Uh, when we think about uh, this child care crisis nationwide, uh, you know, are other states doing something similar with this kind of support program, Louise, or is this a model? Absolutely. So Connecticut has been a model in Connecticut, thanks to Governor Lamont, uh, Lieutenant Governor Bicewicz, and OEC Commissioner Beth Buy. They really paved the way for Connecticut to be a national model. Really, other states were far behind in giving out their stabilization funding and their COVID relief dollars. And Connecticut was the first state to do a lot of that, really leading the way um, in 2020, even through 2021. And right now, there are not a lot of states around the U.S. that have a business development support program 
dedicated to childcare. We've seen people starting it, and we're hoping to really see other business development organizations pick up this fight and really take advantage of the learnings of WBDC and implement something similar in their state with their departments of education. And Louise, the latest round for grants or another batch coming up? Absolutely. So really happy to announce that the next round of grants is opening up next Wednesday, March 23rd. And people can find information on our website, ctwbdc.org. And if you follow us on email or social media, you'll also see announcement about that. But we encourage you to visit our website, learn about these grants, apply for them. And If you need help applying, we have a team of business advisors and workshops to help you get your application done. That's Louise Lisboa again, Director of the Child Care Business Support Program at the Women Business Development Council. Louise, thank you for your time and telling us about this program for child care providers in our state. I appreciate you having me today. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.